Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Front Row Network, the podcast network for people who actually like movies. I'm Steve Sykes, and this is View from the Back Row, a look at movies through the lens of disability representation on screen. In this episode, we'll be talking about one of M. Night Shyamalan's most highly regarded movies, Unbreakable, starring Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. My guest today is the host of Convince Me, uh, another uh, show on the Front Row Network, a stand-up comic extraordinaire and friend of the podcast, Mr. Larry Smith. Welcome to the show, Larry. How's it going? Just great. Just great. Uh, thanks for having me on. This is, I'm really excited to... Uh, to talk. This is one of my favorite movies, and uh, I just love the concept of the show, Steve, so I appreciate you having me on. Oh, well, I uh, am glad that you accepted my invitation. Now, um, this is our second episode of View from the Back Row, um, so it's a pretty new tradition, but it's a tradition nonetheless. Uh, when a guest comes on, uh, we ask them a particular question, So, and I will pose that question to you now, Larry. Um, what was the first a uh, movie or, or, or TV show um, that you remember seeing that featured a character with a disability. Oh man. Um, I can't really say it was a, a movie per se. Um, but the first time I really like, I like made a connection was seeing uh, Marley Matlin do her acceptance speech on the Oscars, which I don't even remember how old I was. I know I was very little mm-hmm. and I remember seeing her and that, that just cemented my lifelong crush on that woman. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, you know, the first, I think the first time it really, I don't know that it really like, like I, 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 I looked at my mom or my sister probably, and was like, what's wrong with her? Which, you know, it, that's a little kid question to ask. Oh, sure. Um, and my my aunt had a friend who uh, was deaf since birth, and I had known Michael since I was, you know, gosh, since I was born. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so, but Michael didn't talk. And, you know, Marley Matlin's up there tr- talking and and signing. And so they, they explained it to me that way. And it was just a, they're like, Oh, just she's deaf. Like Michael, she just can talk a little. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. She's pretty. And that was like my, my biggest, that that was my biggest reaction to that. That was your takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. She seems cool. Really smart and pretty. Okay. that's <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about our movie unbreakable. Um, it was released, 20 years ago, this very weekend, as we record this episode, um, it debuted well before the wave of comic book movies that would come, uh, including the expansive, massive Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, so at the time that it came out, uh, comic, book, comic book movies um, hadn't really been explored that, that much. Um, so Larry... Tell me uh, your first impressions uh, when you first saw this movie and uh, what circumstances you saw it in and what you thought. Well, I, I will tell you, I, we knew that something was coming from M. Night Shyamalan. And we had seen, my friends and I had seen some like, some uh, talk of it on probably one of E, you know, not E, but Entertainment Tonight or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of excited for it. 
uh, to begin with, because at the time Bruce Willis was huge and we all loved Bruce Willis. And then you add Samuel L. Jackson. And at the time M night Shyamalan was, was super hot as a director. And so everyone was like, this is it. We've got to go see this. But, and we were, like I said, we were excited, but we went to see, if I'm not mistaken, it was either dogma or, um, gross point blank. But we went to see that and the preview for Unbreakable came up and we're all sitting there just silent. And it was uh, me and my buddy Jeff and our friend Heidi and a couple other people. I can't remember exactly, but I remember Heidi was on one side, Jeff's on the other. And we're sitting there and we're watching this preview and we're seeing the, you know, the clips of of Bruce Willis doing cool stuff and Samuel L. Jackson is talking over the whole thing and you're getting chills and, and we're all just like wide eyed. And at the end of very end of the, uh, the uh, uh, preview, it, the question pops up, are you unbreakable? And without like a little kid, without thinking, I just went, yes, really loud in the theater, <laughs> which made everyone laugh. And Jeff and Heidi just pat me on the back and they're like, yeah, you are buddy. Yeah, you are. <laughs> And, and so we went opening weekend to, we all like, cause you know, everyone worked weekends at the time. Um, cause we're all kids and, but we took the, we didn't go Friday. We went Saturday night and went and watched it. And I remember like, cause you and I were talking earlier, I rewatched it last night. Um, and I, I remember certain points where my buddy Jeff and I, and he's as big of a nerd as I am, we are, we're gasping and elbowing each other. We're not even looking at each other, but we're elbowing each other. Like, did you, oh, oh, no, it's real. Because the whole time you're like, is is he really, is this the ravings of a madman? You know, mm-hmm. is he, and, you know, what's the actual twist here? And, you know, this the part where he goes to look at the train and he just pushes the door, that the locked door. Mm-hmm. And he just knocks it open like it's not – that was the first moment where, where Jeff and I really went <gasps> – and our elbow in each other. Um, and we just – like Sam Jackson played such a – he played that character so incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And and his uh, – the way that, that he chose um, – Elijah's cadence and the way that he chose the, 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 the certain affectations of, of how he uh, pronounces things and enunciate things, enunciates things was brilliant because he went from, I mean, he was, <laughs> he's from West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where he spent most of his days. Um, which is when they popped up West Philadelphia, mm-hmm. that's immediately my youngest son and I started going into fresh Prince of Bel Air. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so you could hear the West Philadelphia, like, uh, uh, uh enunciations coming in to him choosing these very specific and, and, and almost sharp affectations to his voice. Um, and we just walked out of there shaking our heads. Like I can't wait for the sequel. Mm. And of course we had to wait 20 years. years. Yeah. 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 Um, I remember when I first saw this, uh, I have to admit that 
I, on my very first viewing of it, was a little bit underwhelmed. And it was solely because it seemed like at the time, and I don't know what was wrong with me at this particular point in my life. I must have been incredibly uh, impatient. But I remember thinking that, man, this is a great concept, but it's moving really slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in the times that I have watched it since then, uh, I have come to appreciate that that's, that's part of uh, M. Night's style. Um, taking time and being very deliberate and and careful and painstaking in his presentation of a story, and um, it it has only gotten better in my estimation uh, with each time that I've watched it. Um, and we'll get into what makes it work so well uh, here in a little bit. But um, before we we break down Unbreakable. <laughs> um let's uh let's take a look a little little bit uh at the uh plot uh, the synopsis of the movie. Now the synopsis uh which uh I picked up from IMDb um is going to get into some spoilers. Obviously we're going to get into some spoilery territory and if you're a fan at all of M Night Shyamalan's movies you know that uh, he's all about the twist and, and the surprises and unbreakable is no exception. So, um, let me, uh, break this down. But, uh, again, if for some strange reason you haven't seen unbreakable, you're going to want to pause the podcast at this point and <laughs> go watch it and then come back, uh, enlightened, uh, with all of the details we're about to discuss now. The film opens as we see a baby being born in West Philadelphia. This is Elijah Price, who is so brittle that he is born with broken arms and legs. Uh, As he grows older, he is taunted at school and called Mr. Glass by his classmates since he is so fragile. And as an adult, he runs a successful high-priced comic book art gallery specializing in original drawings of superheroes. Then we're introduced to David Dunn, uh, played obviously by Bruce Willis, uh, security guard at the law, local college stadium. Uh, his marriage is crumbling, and in fact, his wife, uh, Audrey, sleeps downstairs in their son's room uh, while David sleeps upstairs with his son. Uh, on his way back from a job interview and in New York, David's train malfunctions and derails, killing everyone on board except David, who doesn't even have a scratch. Um, he, uh, David attends a memorial service for the crash victims, after which he finds a note on his windshield uh, from a store named Limited Edition and a note asking, how many days of your life have you been sick? Uh, David asks his boss and his wife, but no one can ever remember him being sick. So David decides to take his son to uh, Elijah's store, limited edition, where he meets Elijah, who explains uh, a theory to David. If Elijah can be born with brittle bones and very easily hurt, shouldn't there be someone who is the exact opposite? Uh, And Elijah says that he has researched every disaster to find a sole survivor without a scratch, but has found no luck until David Dunn. Uh, David thinks it's interesting, but um, basically thinks Elijah is, uh, as Larry put it, a raving madman. Um, 
but back at the stadium, uh, David gets a call that there is someone trying to sneak in and asking for David. Uh, and it's Elijah. And he goes on again about his comic book theories with David, uh, theories about everyday men being superheroes, having powers, uh, and so on. And, and David bumps into a guy in line and tells the security at the end of the line to start frisking people. Uh, they watch as the guy David bumps into sees everyone being frisked and leaves the line. Uh, Elijah asks David what that's all about, and David tells him that when he bumped him, he had an image of a certain kind of handgun. So David goes back to work, but Elijah follows the guy that David bumped into to see if this is indeed uh, the fellow that uh, David saw in his vision. Um, Elijah chases him down a long flight of stairs to the subway uh, and falls, shattering his leg and breaking several other bones. But the last thing he sees before losing consciousness is the man's handgun, which is exactly as David described it. Uh, Back at home, David uh, is working out in the basement with his weight set. Uh, His uh, son, uh, who is watching him, believed everything that Elijah said about David being a hero with a special gift, but David still doesn't believe. And uh, David asks his son to take some weight off of the barbell, but without him knowing, he puts more weight on. And in one of the cooler scenes uh, in the movie um, that's filled with filled with cool scenes. Uh, David lifts 250 pounds and then 350 pounds and they keep on adding more and more weights uh, and David comes to realization that he is much stronger than he ever realized. Meanwhile, uh, Elijah is getting his leg rehabbed from his fall and his nurse just happens to be Audrey, David's wife. Elijah asks her questions about uh, her and David, and she explains to him how when they were going out, David was a star football player, but he got in a car accident and never played football again. Uh, It was because of that that she and David were married um, because she feared uh, had he continued to play football, they would have grown apart because she's kind of opposed to the idea of people beating on each other uh, as sport. So um, back at work, uh, David gets a call from his son's school that his son has been hurt. Um, His son had hoped that some of David's superhero traits had rubbed off on him uh, and tries to protect someone else who's being bullied and gets hurt himself in the process. The uh, school nurse uh, who had tended to Uh, David's son remembers David from when he was at that same school. And in fact, it was because of David. uh, She discloses that the school has strict rules about the pool at the school uh, because uh, David uh, himself, when he was a student there, had been picked on, fell in, and was left in the pool to drown. Um, He was found at the bottom of the pool but somehow survived. So David tells this story to Elijah, and Elijah tells him that every superhero has a weakness. So David's kryptonite, as it were, must be water. David's wife decides that him surviving the train crash is a sign that maybe they should give their marriage another try. 
they go out on a date and he explains to her that he felt their marriage was over when he stopped waking her up after he had a bad dream. The next night, David breaks in the train station and examines some of the wrecked trains in a scene that uh, Larry was recalling earlier. Uh, He starts recalling his own car crash from years earlier and remembers that he wasn't hurt at all. In fact, he used his superhuman strength without really being aware of it to rescue Audrey from the flaming vehicle. This convinces him that Elijah was in fact right and that he has never been sick or injured in any way. Elijah tells him it's no coincidence that David is in the security field. He needs to go where people are and protect them. So David, testing out this theory, uh, goes to Penn Station wearing a hooded rain poncho uh, where hundreds of people are passing by. And whenever anyone bumps into David, he has a vision of that person doing something evil. Uh, One's a jewel thief, one's a rapist. But when the maintenance man of the train station bumps into him, David gets a horrible vision of the man going to someone's home and killing the homeowner. David's still wearing the poncho now, but it's looking more and more like a superhero's cape. Uh, Follows the guy as he leaves work. Uh, The guy goes to a nice house in a nice neighborhood where David, upon sneaking into the back, finds the dead homeowner inside. He goes upstairs and rescues two sisters tied up in their bathroom and goes into another room and finds the mother tied up. The window is open. David looks out. And when he turns back around, the maintenance worker uh, appears and pushes David out the window. David lands on the backyard pool that has a winter cover on, um, which starts collapsing with David's weight. And he gets all tangled up underwater with the cover and is drowning again. But the two sisters force a pole down to him. David grabs it and is saved. Uh, David then heads back upstairs, wrestles with the maintenance guy, uh, and kills him uh, by breaking his neck. The next scene is uh, David is back at home, hanging up his poncho slash cape and carrying his sleeping wife upstairs to their bed, uh, which, uh, as we mentioned, they have not shared in some time. Uh, She wakes up and asks him what's wrong, and he says, I had a bad dream. In the morning, uh, while having breakfast, uh, David slides the newspaper over to his son and uh, holds a finger over his mouth to shush the son. The headline tells him a mystery hero that saved the two girls, and the picture accompanying the story is an artist's rendition of what the girls saw, a superhero-like figure with a hood and a cape. The boy looks up at his dad, and David just smiles and nods. David goes over to Elijah's gallery where Elijah is having a huge gathering for a special show. Uh, And he and David go back to Elijah's back office so they can discuss what's happened. Elijah has been in a wheelchair since his fall, but he is nevertheless very proud of David and says, this is the part where we shake hands. Um, When they do, David has a vision of Elijah setting one building on fire 
another vision of Elijah causing a plane crash, and finally, a vision of Elijah exiting the driving compartment of David's train. David looks around Elijah's office and realizes that Elijah has newspaper newspaper clippings of hundreds of disasters from around the world, which Elijah is apparently the mastermind of and has staged them all for his own selfish benefit to find his arch nemesis. Uh, just like in the comics, every, every villain needs a worthy adversary, and Elijah has finally found his. David backs away in horror as Elijah uh, proclaims, they call me Mr. Glass. Uh, and just before the final credits, appear, we see a message that David contacted the authorities and Elijah is now an immense institution for the criminally insane where he will remain until we, 20 years later, watch the movie Glass, um, which we'll get to on a future episode of View from the Back Row. So that is Unbreakable. Um, thank you for sitting through all of that, Larry. Um, now that you, uh, are free to talk about spoilers, what additional impressions do you have of Unbreakable? Well, one of the, like I, I said, this has always been one of my favorite movies. Um, but last night, Nicole, for people that don't know, that's my wife, um, was like, another hey. friend of the podcast. Yes. Um, and she was like, Hey, I'm not, you know, I've seen it before. And, you know, I'm not really interested. I'm going to do some stuff around the house. And as the movie went on, she kept coming in and stopping and watching. And then she'd leave and then she'd come back in and watch some more. And then finally she just sat down and she looked over and she said, this is much more nuanced than I remembered it being. And it is, it's such a good superhero origin story without the big bombastic blow up ending. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this wonderful reveal. It's a character study more than anything of, I don't know what I take away from it is it's a character study of how important it is to find your true self and to look at whatever gifts you've been given and try to use those to the fullest extent. Um, and also not <laughs> you just because, you know, like with, with Elijah, and I'm sure we're probably going to talk about this later. He hung so much of his own self worth and self image on having to have an, an other, Mm-hmm. to to make him whole um that that he represents the danger of that side while while david is a cautionary tale of i'm not using what i've been given i'm not using um you know i i'm doing what i think i'm supposed to be doing to because that's what you're supposed to do and in, instead of going this is who i am and i need to be this person Cause he talks about, you know, when Elijah at the end, he's like, you know, did you, when you woke up this morning, how did you feel? Was that sadness still there? Mm-hmm. And he was like, no. And he's like, good. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, it's, there's, 
on the surface, it's just a great superhero, supervillain origin story. It's shot almost like panels of a comic book at times. Very um, much so. It's so, and again, it's on the surface. It's very pretty. It's very, but when you get down to it, there are layers upon layers upon layers of, of story within this movie that it it takes multiple viewings to really catch it. Lots, lots of layers to the story, lots of layers to the, the meanings, uh, behind the movie. Um, you've already touched on one, um, uh, and and we we spoke about the scene where um, David's son keeps on adding weights onto the barbell, and that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And uh, to me, it was like a flashing red light of a moral. Uh, one of the main takeaways of the story is we don't realize sometimes how much strength we really do have until we're tested. Right, and he had never tested himself since the accident, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think that's a that's a, a very laudable, um, good takeaway to uh, make from the movie. Um, another one is um, it, it's so interesting to see uh, the repairing of the relationship between. Uh, David and his wife. Um, And uh, it's interesting that he started to realize that there was trouble between them when he didn't find himself going to her for comfort Mm -hmm. uh, when he was unsettled. So I thought that was another interesting takeaway. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the specific, you you alluded to it a little bit, um, the specific artistry that M Knight pulls off in this movie. Uh, you already touched on how um, a lot of the shots are framed in a way that is very reminiscent about uh, reminisc- reminiscent of comic books, mm-hmm. um, and that happens all the time. Another thing that I noticed um, upon watching it again was uh, some very simple but effective camera tricks. Uh, M. Knight has a tendency to use the camera as a, a a literal point of view for the audience as if they were in a conversation or or observing what's happening. Uh, and it starts very early on, um, before the train wreck, um, when um, Bruce Willis is putting the moves on a, a seatmate um, uh, after putting away his uh, wedding ring. The camera pans back and forth to them as they're talking, um, whereas normally you would uh, assume a director would just use a static shot and show you know both of them talking. Maybe occasionally cutting into a, an isolated close up, but no, here it's it's camera panning back and forth between the train seats, mm-hmm. like you're a voyeur into the scene. Absolutely, absolutely. The other time that that particular technique. Um, stuck out to me was in the weightlifting scene, which I've uh, praised ad nauseum already, (laughs) but um, the camera tracks the movement up and down of the barbell. Um, And it's, you're, it's like you're spotting uh, David uh, on the weight bench. And it's that kind of of kinetic um, camera work that 
M Nights were known for, and it's just really adds to the um, storytelling. Yeah, well, and so if I can go, uh, if I can digress for a minute, Please one, do. one of the other thing, and I, I meant to say it, and then we we went this direction. And we'll go, <laughs> we'll go back. It's your show, Steve. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm so used to hosting other shows, and I'm like, let me just. Let me just take over. Um, but the, my, my show isn't a runaway train, um, so um, <laughs> let, let's just go where uh, where it leads. So go ahead. Um, a, a, an apt analogy for Unbreakable. Um, exactly. The uh, the watching. So you talked about the the relationship between uh, David and his wife, um, played by. Uh, uh, Robin Wright. Robin Wright Penn, yes. Yes. Um, I blanked. I had it in my head. But the watching the relationship between uh, David and his son grow mm. and how, you know, he she asked him, did you realize that you were keeping us out? Right. And he's like, yes. Why? I don't know. And he starts to, like that scene where the kid is pointing the gun at him. And he's oh. like, fine, you're right. I, you, you'll shoot me and it'll bounce off, but I'll leave. I'll leave because friends don't, and I thought we were just about to be friends for real mm-hmm. and friends don't. And it was so heart wrenching. So when it does get down to the end and he slides the paper mm. and the kid is looking at him and he's like, shush, don't tell anybody. And he's like motions to, to mom, don't tell mom. Mm-hmm. And, and he, it's barely audible. But it wasn't, I'm a superhero. It wasn't, look how great I was. He looks at his son and says, you were right. You were right. Yes. Oh, and it just. I'm getting goosebumps now, even hearing you uh, relate that. (laughs) Uh, And the kid just starts bawling uh, as much as he can without attracting attention to himself. Yeah. And, And David cries. And it's this beautiful, he, well, he let his son in yes completely yep. and it was it was very it was that was a very important moment character wise in in that movie that i i would have kicked myself if i hadn't like like you said if i hadn't went on to ad nauseum about it um because it's just it's the one that really gets me um but it, i mean there's a lot of moments that really get me but that one for me is that is that uh it, it just it just sticks right in right in my chest um but yeah the to go you were talking about the the camera angles and the camera work it, the specific use of color yes is that that he uses with with Elijah and his purples and his darks and how he stands out against all the backgrounds Mm-hmm. Whereas David has the yellows and the greens, which are more muted, and he kind of blends in to his surroundings, except even that because he's just a blue collar guy. Mm-hmm. So when he at the end when he goes to the gallery and everyone is in or everyone's in these dark clothes and moving around and it's this dark almost gray background, he's in his best clothes. Mm-hmm. Um with the brown jacket and the yellow shirt, but he still looks like just some blue collar Philly guy who 
you know, oh, this is a nice windbreaker. I'll put this on to go to a gallery show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but like by f- one of my talking about colors, one of my favorite parts is when uh, it's the flashback. Elijah is a boy. And he's like, I'm never going outside again because I'm not going to get hurt again. And his mom is like, I've got a present for you. Do you want it? And it's out in the park. And the it's, again, grays and, and browns and muted colors. And then there's this bright purple package mm-hmm. sitting on this bench that just almost glows. Yep. And it, it's it's such... Subtle and and brilliant use of of colors to help tell the story, um, and then you get to the point to the part where Elijah doesn't believe anymore that mm-hmm. David is super, and so he loses his he loses himself for a minute and sits in the mm-hmm. back of that that comic shop, and he has none of his purples or anything on, and he just kind of. Is not he's not who he is supposed to be, mm-hmm. and again, very subtle thing. And somebody could argue that it's it's heavy handed. I don't think it is. I think it's a subtle nod to again the the comic book genre, where color tells as much of a story as the actual drawing, the inking, and the words. Um, you talk about subtle and the use of color. Uh, something that I didn't even pick up on until uh, my rewatch. Um, uh, Elijah's mother, um, when David uh, is talking to him at the very end in the art gallery, uh, she's wearing purple eyeshadow. Mm-hmm. So um, there's another subtle thing. Um, and you talk about that scene in the uh, comic book store where Elijah has lost his way completely. Uh, lost his sense of self. I was reading the the trivia and um, the last set of comics that he knocks over on the way out of the store. uh, One of them obviously is a sentry man, which is, which strikes a a chord um, with Elijah in regards to David. But another one uh, that uh, is scattered that you, if you're not looking for it, you don't see it is a, a Nick Fury uh, comic, which at the <laughs> time was being uh, retconned to basically be Samuel L. Jackson. Uh-huh. Um, so that was neat. Uh, I want to I touch on another theme um, that you uh, alluded to when talking about the, the uh, present that uh, Elijah's mother gets for him. Um, one of the really nice things about this movie is uh, it shows two very good um, parent-child relationships. Um, So many times in a movie like this, uh, comic book or otherwise, uh, something unfortunate in the childhood uh, relationships sets up tension later on, whereas uh, Elijah's mom is is a great mom mm-hmm. uh she knows how to reach him and um and then david and his son that that relationship that you touched on is so so uh wonderful and uh, one part that resonated with me anyone who had 
uh, a good relationship with her father at some point or another has fantasized them as a superhero. Yes. Um, they can, they, they they can do no wrong. They can fix anything. And, um, David's son now has that literally in his life. Um, as much as David doesn't believe in himself, uh, his son does, uh-huh. which I thought was an extraordinarily nice touch. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the chemistry between Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson in this. You started touching on it a little bit before, but um, uh, this was one of, I believe, three or four movies that those two worked on together. Um, They had worked together on Pulp Fiction, although not necessarily together together all the time. Um, they were in uh, a diehard movie together, completely different tone from Unbreakable. Yes. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's a couple others that are escaping me at the moment, but, um, talk a little bit about, uh, how those two characters relate and, and maybe how those two actors seem to relate. Well, I think, you know, it did help that they'd worked together previously because just, Having that familiarity with another actor, as you know, do, having done theater, having that familiarity with another actor in previous shows makes it so much easier to build the narrative um, with even though it's two completely different characters. Um, you know, Elijah coming in again, Sam Jackson was brilliant and Bruce Willis is always good, but this was a, such a departure role for him because it was so, uh, pulled back quiet. He was polite. He was, he walked again, subtle stuff. He walks into the office to talk about his sick days and the secretary's there. And he takes his hat off as he walks into the office. Yeah. And he just has his hat in his hands. Um, very gentlemanly. Yes. But you know, what I, what I love is David, I think David wants to believe something is great about himself. Right. Mm -hmm. As we all do. I mean, who doesn't want to think that one day you're going to wake up and I'm still waiting for, for professor X to show up. (laughs) <laughs> and be like, you didn't realize you had this power. Come with right. me. And, uh, you know, I, I'm i 42, and I still am like, if I push really hard, those claws will pop out. <laughs> but, but um, you know, Sam Jackson is so – even though he's – like we see him be menacing with the dude that wants to buy the drawing for his four-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, He's so charismatic and so well-spoken and so deliberate in how he delivers this information and theory to David without being uh, – without trickery, mm-hmm. just being very matter-of-fact. And what I like is after their first meeting when they go – when he comes and, and demands – doesn't demand, but it's like, hey, I know David Dunn. At the at the stadium, and he I can't remember the, all the lines, so I won't even try to but, to butcher them. But when he finishes and he goes, that last one was a joke. Yes, and David <laughs> and David laughs, 
subtly, but he laughs. You can see that friendship start to build mm-hmm. because he, he Elijah, while he is a somewhat off-putting, is a likable character. Mm-hmm. You want to like this guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whereas Bruce Willis had made a career on being likable, on being right. the quippy, fun, every guy who um, can still make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and and Sam Jackson was the, he was loud and, and boisterous and commanding. There wasn't a lot of that. It was just a lot of exchange, mm-hmm. whether it be us, you know, him delivering a line and Bruce Willis giving a subtle, a very subtle look of, I want to believe this, but I can't believe this because this is real life. Um, it's just, it's yeah. arguably at that time, I think Bruce Willis was, was probably the bigger star. Um, yes. But he allowed Sam, anytime they were in a scene together, he allowed Sam Jackson to just lead him through those scenes. And it was, it, I, I really like watching that dynamic and mm-hmm. they do, they just have good, they have good chemistry. Um, and then my God, the, the moment after he shakes Elijah's hand and recoils, yeah. you see Bruce Willis become physically sick. You watch him, you watch the nausea take over. Yep. Um, and, and even though, Essentially, the bad guy has lost. He's won. Mm-hmm. And you see, even then, their relationship, Elijah's still in charge. Because while David is still is walking away, he's still, he's yelling at him. Proclaiming at him. Yes. And it is, it, it's such an, I don't know, I, I, I like the dynamic because... And it's not like Sam Jackson is is yelling as he does in Pulp Fiction. It's just, it's this very, it's not even maniacal. It's just this finally eureka moment. And it's, it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. I I wasn't uh, totally kidding when I say he's proclaiming it. I mean, that uh, is, is uh, that dialogue is, is presented in in very much the way of a a proclamation. Um, Now, let me ask you this, um, because you're talking about that climactic scene. Uh, I remember thinking this when I first saw the movie, and, and it hit me again. One of my um, two or three criticisms of the whole movie uh, is the ending just seemed awfully abrupt to me. And I wondered if you shared that or uh, convinced me if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. I wanted more, but it's a small story. So the ending has to be a, a small ending that ties everything together. And, you know, this ended up being a very popular or much more popular movie than what anyone had thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think while it would have been so cool to see, um, what do they call him later on? What is it like? It's not the century, but they end up having a name for for David's character, and I can't remember what it ends up being. Um, 
but it would have been super cool to see Elijah being like, yes, now that you know my secret, I'm, I'm going to blow this place up and you must save all the people. Yeah. And watching David run and put on the, it would have been really, but that's not the story. We, no. This, this isn't the Avengers. This is just a, a proclamation that among us in the real world live people that have extraordinary gifts. Mm-hmm. It's about finding out who you are. Yeah. And and once they both have revealed who they are, um the the story is is complete. Um but that leads us into um the the tie-in to, to this show here, view from the back row. The problematic part about Unbreakable is the we, we talk about it being a movie about finding out who you are. And um, Mr. Glass is a villain who is shaped very much by a disability, uh, a, a disorder, uh, which is, in fact, a real disorder. There are people that uh, uh, have this condition, which has a really long name that I have not committed to memory. Uh, I apologize for that. But... Um, and, and sadly, this is a trope that, that we see a lot in the movies, um, where someone's reaction to having a disability is becoming a villain. Um, and the disabled villain trope is, is one of the more problematic things, uh, that we've had to work through. And, and I don't know if, I, I don't know if we've worked all the way through it or not, but, um, uh, I, I don't know if if you had noticed that, or uh, if you have seen that in other movies. Maybe, I, yeah. I mean, there's there's always the the I'm I've either was born this way and was victimized, and therefore I shake my fist and I'll show you people. Um, you know, I'm, I've got a brilliant mind and I'll use it to destroy all of you, um, or you've made me this way mm-hmm. and therefore because you made me this way I must I must get the, the you know my revenge on you and and destroy everything around me um you know you think of but there is the opposite we're like and we I don't know if we've seen it in in film or TV but Barbara Gordon um in the comics in the killing joke right she the joker thinks it's hilarious to shoot Batgirl in the stomach and sever her spinal cord. She's, you know, she's paralyzed from the waist down and she continues to be a hero, but that is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I, th- my, my, I think, I mean, the movie is damn, darn near perfect. Um, <laughs> sorry, overlords. Um, <laughs> My show, we can do that. I'm trying right. to be good on everybody else's show. Um, the, my show, we gave everybody a warning. Um, but, uh, you know, it would have been super cool to have yeah, uh, Elijah be like, cool, okay, here's here's this person. Yes, now you and I can work together to stop all of this. But, you know, it... it but does it make it a weaker story is, exactly. is the problem. Exactly. Or is that an unexpected twist that, you know, you've got the 
the the uh, d- disabled uh, mastermind mm-hmm. who is like, hey, you know, because th- they do talk about how the villain is always somewhat. I say always, not always, but a lot of times somewhat deformed mm-hmm. and somewhat uh, over exaggerated in some of the features, and that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you look at the Incredible Hulk; his one of his greatest villains is um, the Thinker, mm-hmm. who is little and scrawny, but with a huge head. Right. Um, you know, that you can I could name off multiple where the hero, even the Hulk as big and green and angry and ape-like as he is, is still not a bad-looking fr- fella. He's mm-hmm. a pretty decent-looking dude. And his all of his villains are these ugly, twisted, you know, the abomination. You know, as and, if the physical deformations actually results in a spiritual and moral uh, deformation. Yeah. and And that is problematic and um i understand that it 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 makes for a a great story there's a great symmetry there um but it's my hope that as we look at movies like this that uh, we don't necessarily say this is bad but it helps to think about it and realize that it it's an issue and we need to think about how our perception uh, of a character like that bleeds over into our perception of disabled people in the real world. Um, I wish I could remember now. You you cued a memory of a comic book character, and that was part of the the Young Warriors, and she had – she was on the – the arm braces that used his crutch and she, oh, yeah. she could fight um, and was still very physically um, uh, active and, and was a hero, but just so happened to need the arm braces to move around. And that's, that's a, just an example of the opposite um, mm-hmm. as we're talking. But I think the probably, and I'll, I'll tell you, see one of the most insulting ones um, where it was, the the hero made the villain was Lex Luthor. Now Lex Luthor, you know, physically is fine. In mm-hmm. fact, pretty decent specimen. Mm-hmm. But when when uh, Kal El's ship crash lands, and, and depending on which story you you read, or if you watch Smallville, either it was the the radiation from the ship, or it was the blowback from it, made him bald. Mm. And it was turning him bald that made him a supervillain. And I'm like, that is <laughs> the most <laughs> insulting thing. Because, you know, depending on where you are, somebody may have been seriously injured mm-hmm. and just like went to rehab and went back to farming. And Lex Luthor was like, I'm bald. My life is over. Like, you suck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how shallow can you possibly get? Exactly. Um, well, we, as a disabled person myself, there, there are competing instincts to try and shed all of the uh, baggage that comes with being disabled. Uh, but at the same time, um, we 
want to acknowledge that that's part of who we are. I mean, that's part of my identity doesn't have to define my identity. And I think that's where we run into problems with characters like Mr. Glass, where um, the disability has defined them and defined them in a uh, not good way. Um, But does that mean you can't enjoy Unbreakable and the story? Absolutely not. Uh, you You have to appreciate the work that Samuel L. Jackson does in uh, dedicating himself to that character. Um, and, you know, he he's restricted by what he's given, um, but he makes the most out of it and makes this uh, powerful character. I wish, I, I found myself wishing that I could see Unbreakable again for the first time because uh, my Perceptions of it, of of course, are affected by the knowledge that um, Elijah will turn out to be the villain at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it almost hard to buy this blossoming friendship between him and, and Bruce Willis, because in hindsight, you know that he's just cultivating the relationship to manipulate him into being his adversary. Yeah. Um, so uh, any other thoughts on Unbreakable. We've talked a little bit about what works in it, uh, what doesn't necessarily work. Um, what what other takeaways do you have from the movie? Um, to, to talk about the, the weightlifting scene again, one of my favorite parts is that um, in the background, very quietly, as he's working out, is the song Midnight Rider. Yes. I love that. And also the scene... we were talking about the subtleties and such. And I know so many movies have a rebirth moment for a hero, but when David gets knocked off uh, into the pool and Mm -hmm. the, the pool cover is around him, you see all this blackness and, and then the little slivers of light where the opening is and he's trying to get to it and, and he can kind of hear noises. And then of course the girls put the, the, pull the skimmer, the Mm -hmm. handle down in there and pull him out. And when he pushes himself up onto the, the patio Mm -hmm. and settles himself in and then stands to his full superheroic height. Yes. um, With the, the water dripping off of him. That is, and again, it's not subtle. That is a very heavy handed, but I love it moment yep. of David being reborn yes. into a, this, this hero, uh, security man or whatever they want to yeah. call him. <laughs> um, baptized, if you will. Yes. Um, when he comes up from the water, he is reborn. He is a new person. Um, that's, that and that is that's a fantastic scene in a movie that's littered with these unforgettable scenes. Um, the one thing that I meant to mention earlier, uh, the scene around the, the breakfast table. Uh, no, actually, this is an earlier scene. Uh, the scene where the um, kid is is going to shoot his dad uh, to convince him um, that uh, he is in fact a superhero. And and now that I say that, it's interesting that two of the more pivotal moments uh, in the movie happen around that 
breakfast table. Um, uh, the, the, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, that is an incredibly tense scene. Uh, and all three actors do a wonderful job, um, uh, with the kid and, and Bruce Willis and, and Robin Wright. Um, but there is a wonderful line in there that momentarily breaks the tension. Um, when uh, David is is trying to get his, <laughs> you're trying to get his wife to uh, uh, go along with him and, and with his strategy, and uh, uh, basically the comment is, uh, "We don't shoot friends, right?" <laughs> no, no, no. She says, "No we don't shoot friends." friends. <laughs> well, and the kid's response was, "I'm only gonna shoot him once." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I lo- I mean, I laugh out loud at that line, even though it's a tense line. It's you're right. It's such a a moment of levity where there's there's still this tension. But you know, we don't shoot friends, right, Audrey? No, no shooting friends. Yeah, and I'm gonna shoot him once. It's like one of the only jokes and and light moments in a movie that is full of such uh, heaviness and and gravity that um, it's it's just it's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So. So yeah, that's unbreakable uh, in uh, a nutshell. Um, we are going to, uh, in a future episode of View from the Back Row, uh, take a look at the um, latter two parts of the trilogy, uh, the um, uh, East Rail trilogy, I guess is what they call it, um, Split and uh, Glass, because we uh, introduce a, another character that's uh, a little divergent, uh, neurodivergent, and we'll have a lot to chew on uh, in talking about um, uh, Split and Glass. Um, but uh, in the meantime, let's, let's uh, talk to us a little bit, Larry, about what you've got coming up on Convince Me. Okay, well, um, the next two episodes are... I, I love every episode that I've done, and I know I say that, but... I don't have guests on that I'm not on fire for or that I'm not actually friends with. Um, I will say the last episode that came out with Kevin Kautzman is one of my favorite episodes. And if people, people should go listen to it. He is a brilliant playwright and has, uh, we talk about his new play um, that is, is just brilliant. Um, so please listen to that episode. Um, Kevin Kautzman is, is so fun and he, he's so funny and then just smart. And I, you ever talk to somebody that's so smart, you feel like you should just let them have whatever it is you're doing. Like you just take the show. I don't want, I'm not, he, that's the kind of guy Kevin is, but the next two episodes, I've got, um, two more of my friends. One is Jeremy Nunez, who. Uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, he's a stand-up comic, clean comic, um, and I get—I <laughs> said this—he hires me to open for him a lot, which is hilarious because I think he likes to watch me try to make my jokes clean. Not that I'm a dirty comic, <laughs> but I'm—I mean, I'm what would be called dirty clean because I just talk like I talk, which is peppered with. Uh, with expletives at times, um, spicy, spicy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, and I pick up some, some subjects that might not be church friendly, but Jeremy is this, he's a great dude. He just won uh best comic in the Illinois times. Um, 
He has an Amazon Prime special. He has a Dry Bar special. Um, multiple albums. He was voted, uh, I forget how many years ago, but um, best comic in Chicago uh, several years ago. So he's he, he's a legit dude um, and a friend of mine. And so we talk, um, he tries to convince me uh, about uh, conspiracy theories, and it is a lot of fun. Oh. The episode after that is, again, a buddy of mine, um, Dan Bublitz Jr., who uh, just finished filming his Dry Bar special, um, host of uh, uh, the Art of Bombing podcast, and uh, has been pivotal in starting several uh, comedy festivals, stand-up comedy festivals. Um, and Dan's just an all-around fun guy. And so we, we discuss some, uh, some fun stuff on that episode, but that's, that's what's coming up. And then after that, I'm going to be showcasing some, uh, some, uh, local guys. Um, and that may, you may not have heard of, but you should cause they're brilliant and fun. So that's what we're doing. Fantastic. Uh, I encourage everybody, uh, to look for those two episodes and, and, uh, check out, uh, the um, back uh, catalog of Convince Me episodes. Um, very entertaining stuff, uh, as is all the stuff you'll find on the Front Row Network. Um, make sure that you look for us on social media, Facebook. Uh, we're on Twitter sometimes, uh, Instagram, just all of the social goodies. Um, and we also can be found um, at uh, NPR Illinois, uh, if you search for Front Row Network in NPR Illinois, you will find a repository of all of the episodes uh, from the Front Row Network fleet of quality podcasts. So um, coming up uh, on our next episode of View from the Back Row, um, we'll finish our discussion of the um, trilogy uh, that started with Unbreakable and uh, continues in um, split before being wrapped up in glass. And um, I'm extending a, a formal invitation to you, Mr. Smith, to come back and uh, join me for a discussion of those two movies, if you would be so kind. I would absolutely be honored to. I, uh, I, I can't wait. Uh, these are some of my favorite movies, and uh, I, love, I obviously love talking about them. So thank you, Steve. Oh, fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show, Larry. So that, in fact, wraps it up for this episode of View from the Back Row on the Front Row Network in NPR, Illinois. Until next time, this is Steve Sykes, and we will see you on the Front Row. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Front Row Network, a proud Community Voices member of National Public Radio Illinois. For more from the Front Row Network, including our articles or our other dozens of shows, visit thefrontrownetwork.com or nprillinois.org slash programs slash network. You can also find us on social media by searching for the Front Row Network on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Front Row Reviews with a Z. 